This is a Federal News Network podcast. Remember back in last September, horse-mounted Border Patrol agents were accused of whipping border crossers. The Biden administration expressed horror and launched an investigation through the Border Patrol Office of Professional Responsibility. If there was a report, it hasn't come out yet. And now the National Police Association has launched a Freedom of Information Act request on everything connected with the incident. We get more now from spokeswoman Betsy Smith. Ms. Smith, I should call you Sergeant Smith, former police officer yourself. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And I'm so glad we're talking about this subject. This means a lot to us at the National Police Association to really get the information as to what happened to these agents who were so publicly excoriated when this occurred. How many agents were involved, do you recall? I believe there was a total of five agents involved in the initial situation. And then, of course, there's a supervisor. It was also fluid because if you recall, the president was giving a speech shortly after these photos became available. And so during his speech, when the media started to ask him questions, he was asked about this before there was any investigation. And he said, well, these people will pay and called it strapping, that these migrants were being strapped by these agents. Tom, I was actually waiting to go live on a cable news show right after the president's remarks. And so, of course, they immediately asked me about it. And I was absolutely flabbergasted that with no investigation and no real details, the president of the United States, who's really their employer, would say such scurrilous things. I guess the picture juxtaposed some kind of a long leather strap with agents trying to restrain people. I guess my first question is, what is the purpose of that strap at all on a horse? Because I don't know one end of a horse from the other. (laughs) Well, Tom, I grew up riding. So what those agents were doing, it was not a strap or a whip, like people said. These were the reins. That's your steering wheel for your horse. Without reins, you can't steer your horse. So the reins are longer and they're leather because those agents who are amazing athletes, they have to be able to control those horses, get on and off of them while controlling the horses. And what was happening during that situation, if you recall, there was this huge push of immigrants and some of them were violent. So they are pushing on those horses, trying to grab the horses The agents are using their reins to keep those people away from the horses. One of the things that people don't understand is that, and we saw this during the George Floyd riots, police horses can be badly injured and have been badly injured and attacked. So the agents not only use the horses to try to control people, but they have to try to control people to keep them away from the horses. Because a horse, while large, is a very thin-skinned animal. It was a difficult and very fluid situation. And from my reading of reports after the fact, it was later determined that there was no whipping taking place, but still the investigation went on. Is that the issue here? Yes. Even the photographer who took those photos said there was no whipping, there was no strapping. But very quickly, politicians, again, from the president on down, the vice president, then Hollywood, of course, got involved. And they started making it a racial situation because the migrants were Haitian. So they were dark skinned 
Then somebody decided to try to tie it to slavery. Oh, this is reminiscent of slavery. And it just, it got absolutely ridiculous and over emotional, you know, largely in part to A, the political climate and B, social media. And then it kind of went away and no one knows there's been no public disclosure as to what happened to the agents because the last that we knew they were on administrative duty taken off of their horses, which is a huge and expensive waste of the Border Patrol's already stretched resources. And we don't know what happened to them. So we have these agents that were excoriated and maligned and it all went away. We're speaking with Betsy Smith, retired police sergeant and now spokesperson for the National Police Association. And you are therefore FOIAing the Department of Homeland Security for what exactly? Well, we'd like the involved emails from that incident on anything related to that, related to the investigation, any correspondence between the White House and Secretary Mayorkas in relating to this specific investigation. And again, we realize that this is a personnel issue. And so those issues are to be kept private. The problem we have, Tom, is that this was so public and these agents have not been either found to have done wrong or what we believe found to have done no wrong. And frankly, we believe there should be a public apology to them because they were just doing their jobs and quite frankly, risking their lives by doing it. And yet they were for, you know, a week or two of the news cycle, the most hated horseback riders in the nation. And the Border Patrol already has so much they're dealing with right now as they are trying to stave off what, as I sit here right now, 80 miles from the southern border, they are trying to protect our southern border from what I believe is an invasion And uh, it's a difficult job. They don't always get treated really well by the media and by the political class. So we'd like to see and hear a public apology so that these agents can go on with their lives. And any response yet from the department or the bureau? We have not gotten a response yet, but we will certainly let everyone know when we do. All right. Betsy Smith of the National Police Association, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, John. We'll post this interview with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target Red Card, you'll save 5% every day, in-store and online. Find the Red Card that's right for you, whether it's debit, credit, or Target's new Red Card Reloadable, which doesn't require an existing bank account or credit check. With Target Red Card, you'll get exclusive deals and free shipping on most items. Visit Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. It's always a great day to save. Restrictions apply.